and and then I and, and I'd always kept out of national politics. I've I've always enjoyed local government. That that you knew that you know people were more left or right, um, or centrist. But but politics didn't play national politics didn't play a big role. Um, so I'd always kept out of politics. Um, the local Labour MP had approached me quite early on in my local government. He he had diabetes. Um, Jeff Braybrook was his name. And he had uh, contracted diabetes and was considering retiring. And he had approached me to see if I would be interested. And I said to say to him, I did think about it because it was a safe Labour seat. Um, but I said to him, look, I, I, I would be, I would be wrong. It would be wrong for me to take up that opportunity because I'm not really a Labour person. I'm really more to the right mm. than, than mm. that. Um, and we and we remain good friends. Mm. Um, so, so, I, but I did start talking to my husband about, you know, what it, what it would mean, and would he would he consider it, and then then I did stand um, in. So, so I didn't get elected back onto council in ninety six. I didn't really try. I, I I got really I got quite disen, disenchanted. We had a great council. Which which rebuilt um, Napier City Napier City Centre actually, and and it's still like that today. Um, and then the following council, we just had some people from outside council who just made life difficult. They questioned everything. They were always constantly in the media criticising, and that actually wears you down. Mm. And I was doing quite a lot of work with the development of McLean Park, right. and um, and we got the lighting. It was just a happy, happy coincidence that the lighting technology was changing at the same time as television camera technology. And so I convinced the um, New Zealand Cricket Council and New Zealand Rugby to put a bit of money in to help us, and we put lights into McLean Park. And we had the first day-night cricket there, and we had the first night um, all-black trial on McLean Park. So I was doing a lot of work with that. And 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 in those days, you know, the different breweries um, uh, sponsored the different the, the the different codes. So there was always an argument between cricket and rugby uh, as to how long they played and how long their breweries' um, signs were up. Uh, and um, again, an individual who just came in at the last minute and just made life really really difficult with everything we're trying to do. And I never. It's the only time in, in my whole career that I really felt I was up against someone who resented the fact I was a woman oh, okay. um, and it was a, you know, a male domain. Rugby is about men, not women. Right. And so therefore, you know, what right have you to be involved? It's the only time in my life okay. I've really come up against that so overtly and, and I just got so fed up with all of this. And I, I didn't even run a campaign. I, d I didn't... I didn't have the strength, looking back on it, I didn't have the strength to say, this is not for me anymore. I just took the easy way out, really, and I knew I wouldn't be re-elected and didn't try, Right. which my father gave me heaps of. <laughs> <laughs> can imagine after what you said earlier. Yeah, but but yeah. was very supportive. And um, and the, so that's that was then my opportunity to get involved with national politics. Right. That created the gap, if sure. you like. Sure. And so you did that? I did. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I 
got very high on the list, actually. We, I had a great team who worked really hard to help me, and I went into Parliament at number 20 on the list um, under Jenny Shipley. And, but I went in as a list MP based in Napier and then tried to win that electorate when Jeff Braybrook retired, um, tried to win that electorate and, and failed. So I had a, a 2002 to 2005. Um, I, I didn't have, you know, it wasn't in Parliament and wasn't sure whether I wanted to go back what really wasn't sure, and then I was had my arm twisted by a couple of colleagues who said, brought me the data and said, we, we think that the East Coast electorate is winnable um, and we'll, you know, we'll help you build a team and uh, support you. And so it meant moving to Gisborne. Mm-hmm. And so my poor dear husband mm-hmm. helped, you know, we sold our house and we moved up to Gisborne. He was reluctant, in fairness the last minute, uh, but I worked for a year, campaigned for a year to win that seat and um, and I'll always be grateful to my husband because if I hadn't got elected, we were on the skin of our, we, on the bones of our bum, as, as they say, <laughs> yeah. because we used all our resources, mm-hmm. really. Um, the politics started uh, in the National Party when I saw a sign um, uh, a little notice board uh, in February 1989, which said, um, all welcome to the Silverdale branch of the Waikato Electric National Party. So I turned up to that, uh, sat at the back, uh, obviously was the only young guy there, got asked to come to the front, uh, and then a whole lot of serendipitous things happened all at once that just kept happening for the next 30 years. Uh, and the first was the uh, I made a connection, really deep connection with the electorate chairman of the time, because I was a young, I was young. The National Party, you know, was had a lot of retired people sitting in that branch. They wanted to have somebody young. It was great, someone from the next generations interested in politics. They invited me to the electorate AGM. I turned up to that. I was then invited to say a few words. They then said, "Why don't you become part of the executive? Why don't you be our young Nat?" So that's what happened. They said, why don't you come down to the uh, National Conference in 1989? That's what happened. It was in Dunedin. That's where I got to meet uh, Winston Peters for the first time, my local MP. Uh, Ruth Richardson, met Jim Bolger. Um, I met Sir Robert Muldoon. Uh, That was the first National Conference. I have been to, what is it, 35 since? 30 since. Um, And... um, kept doing that, so I became involved in the Young Nats. Then I became student president. I desperately, I absolutely imagined myself being the student president. No one had been a student president uh, from uh, a Young Nat, right? You don't get, Young Nats don't get elected student presidents. Well, they did in 1991 because there were four Labour Party people or left of centre people stood against me because I was so horrified that a Young Nat was standing. They split the vote and I won. Uh, and so, and on it went. And so, at the end of being a student president, I then um, uh, got a job in the National Party as a as a regional. Uh, the the only time they did this was the nineteen ninety three election, where they put regional officers uh, that looked after a particular region, which meant that I went round the Central North Island region 
uh, providing support and advice for the National Party MPs trying to get re-elected. So that threw me in at the very young age of like 21, uh, 22, 23, around there, in, in the mechanics of running campaigns and how to win them, what to do to try to not to lose them, although we got swept away in most cases because of the swing against the national government in that year. It was remarkable. So I connected with hundreds of people, uh, including my predecessor in this job, Tony Ryle, who was a remarkable politician. Uh, and, and then from there, found myself down in Wellington uh, in 1994. Uh, and my job was to be the secretary for the party committee that worked out how to deal with MMP because we just had the MMP um, um, referendum. All our rules had to change. And I was the party person that coordinated that from a logist operation support perspective. Remarkable experience. And by November 1994, was in the private office of Jim Bolger, the then Prime Minister. Serendipity. And so then I had three years travelling around the country, working for him, putting together events every weekend, travelling with him, meeting uh, every people from all walks of life, from marais to schools to hospitals to businesses, from Kaikoui to Stewart Island for three years, every weekend, travelling with the Prime Minister. Absolutely extraordinary experience. Um, and so by then, I was absolutely sure that this was going to come to pass, that I was going to be a Member of Parliament. And the question now was when, not if. And then the big decision was to pull out of the political process the overt, determined political process and go and do some something else for a while. And why was that? What was the I just had a deep I I had a deep sense that if you if you just kept going in that process, you find yourself an MP by the time you're 30 and you haven't done anything. Um, you haven't, you have done politics, you have done the process of politics, um, the, the sort of the framework of politics. But politics is more than process. Politics is a whole lot more than knowing how to get yourself nominated and get yourself elected and sitting in a caucus. Politics is representing a community. It is understanding people and understanding the diversity of experience, lived experience that is in your community and giving effect and a voice to it. But what I decided not to, what I decided to do was not put myself forward as a young candidate when opportunities came up in 99 and 02 and, uh, but to stay working. And the opportunities kept coming up. Like in 08, uh, and Simon write, raises it in his book, he and I were on the same committee in Tauranga supporting Bob Clarkson, right? Mm. Uh, and we all thought Bob was going to stand again, and he didn't. And so everyone would have thought it would have been Simon versus me for that nomination. But I had just started at APITA as a chief executive. So he says in his book, I was the first person he rang to see, you know, who the competition was going to be. And... Um, I said, no, it's all yours, mate, and I backed him. I was uh, a delegate, and he got my vote uh, as the candidate for national, and you know, he built a fantastic career subsequently. Um, and then in 2011, the opportunity presented itself in Coromandel, but I'd just started at Fonterra, uh, and I said, no, I can't do that. Um, so 
I then assumed I was going to be at Fonterra. For, it was a senior role there for quite a few years. And then Tony Ryle, after already renominating, decided to step down, a bit like what I did. Uh, and suddenly there was an opportunity. And as Michelle said, well, um, slightly more vernacular that I'm going to share it. I think it's time you either put your hand up for this or stop talking about it. Uh, and um, so I did. 2014, am I yep. right? Is that when you started to, and when you got elected yeah. as MP for Bay of Plenty? Yeah. So uh, how that works is uh, firstly you've got to be nominated by the party as your candidate. Uh, so Tony Ryle stepped down, said he looked he wasn't going to stand again after all. Uh, and uh, so I put my name forward and ran a process and on June the 3rd, 2014, got the support of the local National Party people and just basically hit the ground running. I knocked on 12,000 doors um, uh, and introduced myself as um, you know the National Party candidate. And look, we did very well. We got a massive party vote um, and you know, got a huge um, support locally. Uh, and then, uh, but I acknowledge that that support came from the fact that, uh, and you must always never forget this in politics, it was the people that got you there uh, in terms of the National Party people. And uh, I was there, I got elected because I was a National Party, right? And so John Key said to me right at the sort of start, um, both Michelle and I, sort of advice was um, first three years work your ass off locally. People, and like everything in life, you know, there's first impressions, right? Uh, so there's this new person who's become elected. Who is he? Or oh, some national guy's got re-elected or been elected. What's he like? Mm. It's a blank canvas and you have to make sure that the, you know, that the people in your community of Papama and Mangatapu and Tupuna and Kaimai when they have that conversation, oh, what's that new guy? What's what's that new guy like? That people say, oh, he's a pretty hard worker from what I can see. Because people make a decision about you. They decide that you are either someone who's got their interests at heart and uh, work hard, and then once that's locked in, that's what they think about you. Yeah. Um, and frankly, that's no different. Whatever the career, mm -hmm. whatever professional role you choose, yeah. that's that that applies and but I think it particularly applies uh, to get to um, to politics so I just really worked hard uh, locally and absolutely loved it because the, these are my people right this is this is my city we moved here in 1974 when there were 27,000 people yeah. there was no Papamoa well there was actually <laughs> one street uh, and you know now look at yeah. it so your your time in politics was that that was 2005 wasn't it I think you started yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What what was what was it? Was it the the housing policy or the the passion about that? Was that what drove you to stand? Yeah, or yeah. What, yeah? That's, that's, that's what got me into Parliament. Yeah, yeah. is that I, I wanted to get this housing stuff going. Yeah, I think the first year I was in there, or the first year National did housing, they did four houses in a year. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, Labor, I don't know if they did any. They, uh, that was Helen Clark's years in those years. Yeah. But uh, uh, I think housing is very important, you know, if you can if you can keep your families together with a good, a reasonable house, don't it mm. be a good, good, good house, but a reasonable house. If you can keep your families together, I mean, uh, you don't get crooks and all that. So those that stay together, 
I'll reword that. Those that play together mm-hmm. stay together. Yeah. And if families stay together, usually don't have trouble. Right. Yeah. So uh, we uh, and again, if you have the point system on the house, the parents are going to tell the kids not to abuse the house, not to beat it up, or so forth, because we lose money. You know. Yeah. So the whole thing starts to work. Yeah. Yeah. But, wow. Yeah. So how did you find your time in politics? Was it frustrating? Yeah. After the first 12 months, I realised I, I, should, I shouldn't have gone. Right. Um, if you're not in the th- top three or four, you might as well not be there. Right. And uh, I certainly wasn't in the top three or four. We couldn't get her anywhere. And we just, we had other families that needed to come into the safe house. And I just had to, I had to evict her. And I had to evict her into complete and utter homelessness so that she would get far enough up the list with working income to be able to go into a motel for a week. And that was all we could give her. And I just felt morally corrupt. I just, because she said to me, well, what was the point of leaving? Um, you know, um, and that's when women often go back. Because at least they had a home for their kids, right? And I just thought, there's some, something. This, the, we, I just cannot. I just cannot continue to play this game. I cannot, I had to do that. I had to put that family out on the street. And it just broke my heart. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going into politics. I'm changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's um, basically what I did. I'd had people ask me if I'd want to, uh, you know, you should go into politics, that kind of thing. But stuff it. I'll do it. And you did. And I did. Yeah. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Again, timing, amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, there were people that gave me um, um, petrol tokens and um, I would come round and, you know, there was always a box of goodies left on the doorstep yeah. and they help you in a lot of ways. But it was a big electorate and I did a week in Gisborne and then I'd drive over and do a week in in Fakatani, because the electorate went from Wairoa right round to the middle of the Fakatani River. So it, it was a big electorate. It got bigger um, in my time, but it took a lot to actually, a, a lot of expense to to be moving around constantly. Mm. And people gave me accommodation mm. and um, were really, really helpful. Um, about three weeks out from the election, I was driving over... Um, the, the, the Trafford's Hill, which is the big hill um, at the end of the Waiweka Gorge on the Gisborne side, and my car stopped. Um, Truckie gave me a ride back to where I could get a phone, and and I rang a towing company uh, in Apotiki who came out and picked up my car, didn't charge me, took it back to um, a great man in Fakatani called Wally Sutherland, who dropped an engine into it. He said, I don't know how long it'll last. I said, Wally, 
I've got $2,000 worth of sign writing on this car. I've only got, it's only got to last two and a half weeks. Um, and he didn't send me a bill for a couple of months and yeah. then he halved it. Sure. So, you know, people help you, but it still is a big ask, yeah. uh, financial um, risk that people take yeah. when they stand as candidate that I don't think a lot of people understand. No, I don't think they do. No, that's right. It's an interesting insight. It was just the the sense the sense of accomplishment uh, and destiny was just extraordinary. Oh, it was amazing. I I used to turn up to Parliament. I never got over the the awe, if you like, of walking up those steps and thinking, I actually, you know, I work here. Yeah. It it, it is a really really special, privileged position to be in and. The day you stop that is the day you should retire. Stop feeling that. Stop feeling it's that. It's the day you should retire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, man, I've had the most amazing opportunities to do things and to change things and to have um, the experiences, international experiences. Um, yeah, it can be it can be lonely and it can be um, hard. But I've got some amazing friends who are in Parliament who understand. I've got some amazing friends who, long-time friends since, you know, ch children. Um, and you just learn to cherish those that you can trust. Yeah. But, yeah, it's the most bizarre experience when you go into Parliament and you realise that all the security guards have learnt your name. And... People literally stop and open doors for you, like literally open doors for you. And um, when you're um, when you when you're off and out and about and doing something, people treat you differently. And then I always find people who are like, oh, you, "You're just you're just quite normal, aren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I'm quite normal. I put my trousers on one leg at a time, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think that's the the, the joy or the blessing of um, of having list MPs as well as electorate MPs. There's an experience, a series of um, people that get into Parliament who wouldn't normally be in Parliament. So yeah, we get that that chance. It's it was a real surprise when I first started. Like it really was that you think, okay, you're an MP, great. You go into Parliament, you realise you've lost the ability to control your day. That's a, and and having been in an NGO, and you know, I was used to being able to problem solve and fix things and fast paced, but I was also able to control my day. When you're in Parliament and you're backbencher, you're literally um, not able to leave the precinct unless you have a whip slip. Unless it's lunchtime or dinner time, right? And so, you know, people say to me, "Oh, well, where's a great place to eat in Wellington?" I have no idea. <laughs> there are two places I eat in Wellington. One of them is my apartment, and <laughs> and the other is Copperfields, which is our local, you know, our cafe that's sitting in the. Um, you know, you you don't get out. You don't get to shop. You don't get to explore. You don't get to do any of those things. You're literally there, and you're there from about eight a.m. in the morning till ten p.m. at night. 
So your 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 days are long, mm. and um, yeah, you you can't just whip out for a coffee with a friend or something. You're literally there the whole time. So it's a long day, and I didn't realize I didn't realize that that's how it worked with being on precinct. Um, but yeah, it was. I'm used to it now, but it was a, it felt very confining. Yeah. Um, you, you're not just an MP; you've become you've become a minister. Um, so, can you talk to me about about that? How how that came about, and what that feels like? I mean, that's a that's a level above again, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And and really, I don't understand anyone who goes to Parliament who doesn't aspire to be a minister because that's, you know, you get to sit at that table at the top floor on the on the 10th floor of the Beehive. And New Zealand has a really um, unique uh, Westminster system that that cabinet table is only cabinet ministers. There's no officials there. You You have to know your stuff. You have to be well briefed. Um, so there's no help if you're trying to if you're trying to convince your colleagues if you've got a paper, there's no help from from your officials. You you're the one that can be questioned by 19 people, mm. particularly the prime minister. Mm. So so I've never understood anyone who didn't aspire to be a cabinet minister, and um, and really you pinch yourself that that you have that opportunity. Uh, I think those ambitious amongst us could see opportunity to uh, climb the ladder in opposition. And obviously the first big um, uh, dramatic transition was um, Bill deciding that he wasn't going to keep in charge of this. And then we have a, you know, a pretty um, intense leadership battle, which Simon was successful in. Uh, and you know, being the leader of the opposition is described as the worst job in the world, certainly in the country. Uh, and you know he he gave it everything, and you know actually you know to his credit uh, had the party in a reasonable position going into 2020, uh, and then COVID hit, uh, and then you know our vote collapsed right, and um, by that stage I had had the profile of the um, zero climate bill, the climate change profile. I then got put by Simon into agriculture and had pretty strong support within that sector. Uh, and I was seen as an alternative to him. And so the conversations uh, began. And, um, you know, this is when ego and hubris start uh, rearing its head again uh, because, you know, I saw an opportunity where actually this could, this could work in a way that I could be the leader of the National Party uh, and potentially Prime Minister at the end of 2020. And so um, it got, uh, you know, pretty tense there um, in the caucus as it became clear that uh, Simon's support was um, uh, seeding away, particularly from the broader country, um, uh, and that was impacting the national vote. Uh, and, you know, there was quite a lot of conversation within the party and outside that actually we needed to make a change and I was the person that we needed to change too. And so that that happened in May and, um, you know, it was a remarkable point, you know, to find yourself, you know, to challenge um, uh, Simon for the leadership and and to win it. 
and to have caucus support to be the leader of the National Party is a remarkable, remarkable moment. Look, Winston is a clever guy. I mean, he's, quite, he's just a bit lazy, that's all. When we went to uh, um, the select committee meetings and things like that, Winston would be on some of the groups that had to go to there. He would, oh, you might know the system, on a Monday night, let me make sure I'm right here, on a Monday night we used to get a heap of papers that that big, yeah. two inches thick. And we had to read anything that concerned us, we had to read that by Tuesday lunchtime. Because what had happened, we go to select committees to discuss them, you see. Mm. Winston had never spent any time, he'd arrive at the select committee with the thing still wrapped up. <laughs> he hadn't read it at all. But otherwise, I think Winston was quite clever. Mm. Why did Winston get beaten in Tarana? Well, I was well known. I mean, we all agree with that. I, my name was well known. Yeah. And that was a bigger disadvantage. But why I, why I won it, I'm tongue tied, was Winston kept talking about Bob Clarkson. Bob Clarkson won't win. Bob Clarkson won't do this. Bob Clarkson won't do that. Good on you, Winston. Keep going. More my <laughs> name's out, the better. <laughs> so I made a decision no public meetings. Now, I might have a few on the street corner and things like that, but big meetings, none. Because if Winston come along to a public meeting, he could blow me to pieces. Right. Because I'm a new boy, you know. Yeah. So I said that my, my staff in my, um, in my office nearly blew their top. <laughs> and I said, no, nah, that's it. I made a decision. I think we'll win this because this is how it'll go. So every meeting he went to, public or not, he'd spend the first 20 minutes saying how bad Bob Clarkson was. You know what people do when you run somebody all the time? They take their side, don't they? Well, not always, but they do yeah, take their side. Yeah. And that's what happened. I mean, he just lost vote after vote after vote. He was doing your marketing for you? Yeah, as yeah. simple as that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think Winston was very clever, but he made one fault, one mistake there. He really did. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about his, his policies? Were you in, a, in, agree in agreement with anything that he's... Stood for, or his party stood yes, for? Yes, he did. Some of his immigration stuff is good. I didn't study that side of things very much. I suppose I looked after my own field. But, uh, no, he had some that were pretty good. He's, he's, uh, he, he didn't like immigration very much. You know, they bring these groups of odds about people in. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. But he's a bit of a player. I mean, he plays on the one that suits the market. And this Maori one at the moment, of course... He's quite keen on that because he, he can get some, um, some, what's the word, some energy out of the people on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, uh, uh, but as far as a politician, uh, when John Brash was leader of the opposition, I used to get on pretty good with Don. He had some good ideas. But uh, then he went, of course. And John Key took over. Well, John's a really good speaker, you know, and things like that, dealing with the public. And politically, that's really good news, isn't it? I mean, that's what you want. Yeah. But uh, I was there to get the job done, not uh, muck around talking to the public. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Some amazing people. John Key was just an incredible intellect. Bill English 
the biggest intellect I've ever come across in, in, in all my life. Beats even my husband. Um, I don't tell him that too often. Um, uh, and people like Stephen Joyce, who just have so much commercial knowledge and, um, uh, you know, it was it was an absolute uh, pleasure to to go in and, and Chris, someone like Chris Finlayson, who's a very talented lawyer, but he he brought to his his treaty work such innovation that um, brought both worlds together, Matarangi Māori and and um, well, the Māori world view, and 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 melded that into legal frameworks in ways that no one had ever thought about before, mm-hmm. and so you know there was some amazing amazing times. Um, we were all through that period where you know that first term. Um, really, until Jacinda turned up, eight weeks from the 2020 election, National was miles ahead. Mm. You know, that's why they made the change in 2020 is that, um, you know, uh, Andrew Little was 15 points behind, eight weeks to go. Uh, and so, um, you know, I was part of a remarkable first-term government, uh, third-term government, just watching it. You can't dodge the fact that ultimately it was a call that... Um, uh, I thought change needed to happen, and um, you know, so did other people, and ultimately, so did the National Party Caucus. Mm. Uh, but the management of it, uh, of that transition, um, was, you know, tough, and occurred in uh, the most extreme of circumstances. Right, and you can run through your mind, could you have done it differently? Should you have done it differently? Um, what would happen if you didn't, if you held on and let uh, Simon take it through to the election? Uh, would he have got better than 25% that Judith got? Um, don't know. Um, at the time, it looked pretty perilous from our perspective. And you have your triumphs, and you have. I mean, I had, I, I, I still, I still have a passion for education. Obviously, that's my background. That's my family experience. Um, I, I, I picked up a, a portfolio that I knew that New Zealand had been at the top of the list and was on the downward slope. Um, and you know, we, we, we tried to do things to, to lift our, uh, particularly our Maori and Pacifica. Students, but also, um, and I see nationals brought it back again to get some accountability back to parents, because because teachers only have kids for a short period of time. Actually, your best teachers are your parents, but they need to understand um, how their child is doing, where the weak areas are, where they can help, and um, you know, I, I I. I worked hard to try and get that through to the unions, that it wasn't about judging good teaching or bad teaching. It was about trying to create a progress that could be followed by both um, teachers and parents and students. Actually, the students picked it up very well. I went into classrooms where kids would take me out and there'd be a big wall that would have, you know, the progress that they were making. they say, well, look, I'm really, I'm really bad. I'm not doing particularly well in my mathematics, but my reading, I'm way ahead of, of, you know, um, blue class or whatever it was. So, so as I say, kids, kids know. They know who 
they know which groups are the top groups and which aren't, um, and they know that the, whether they're um, up with the rest of the class or falling behind. Mm. Um, so are you referring to around there about the the national standards. national standards implementation? Yeah, and and the opposition used to say, well, they're not they're not national and they're not standard. Well, of course they're not standard. I was very much um, uh, conscious of the fact you, you, you don't want to you don't want to teach to a test. You don't want to be testing kids because that only says what they learn on one day. Whereas what you want to be doing is watching a child's progress over a period of time and using various ways that teachers have mm. to to assess the progress that they were making, mm. and then track that um, and talk to parents about it because parents can help. I had my uh, granddaughters um, for the week before Christmas and, and the mother said to me, the teachers said, you know, for the littlest one, we've got to keep her reading up because mm. kids over the Christmas holidays, six weeks, they often fall behind. Yeah. If they're not natural, enthusiastic readers in mm. particular. So she has to, you know, can you make sure that every night mm. we go through one of her books? Um, and that's how that's how parents want to be involved and need to be involved in, in children's education. And all too often you hear parents say, look, I have no idea. I just have no idea. Yeah. And and I don't know what I can do to help. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. So that was, you know, I still am passionate about education. I can tell. I still, yeah. still um, want to make sure that, because it, it is the enabler. Mm. It means it doesn't matter what your background is. If you get a good education, mm. Uh, and you, it, it enables you to go on and do a whole lot of things. Yeah. Um, as, as, as Minister of Tertiary, which I was for about mm. 14, 15 months, nearly killed me to have the whole lot. I said to Jan <laughs> Tanetti, be careful. Um, but, you know, to see to be at a graduation and see someone who was the first person in their family ever to get a, a degree, mm. You know, that is really something. Mm. Or even to go on to be the first person in their family to go on to tertiary education. Mm. That that is really something and that mm. and that gives that that person a, a huge opportunity in life. So mm. education is the enabler. Mm. Mm. I ended up chairing foreign affairs and defence and trade. Uh, I went to Iraq. This is all in my first term. I went to Iraq with the Minister of Defence. It, it, I went to, in 2016, I went to the two American uh, conventions, the Republican convention and the Democratic convention, week, one week after the other, listened to Obama, listened to Trump, uh, met Jesse Jackson. I mean, these are out there experiences, and that was just in the first term. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so remarkable job, um, and absolutely loved it, uh, and, you know, had a you know, very good uh, personal result here in 2017, uh, and but we lost. Got more votes, but we lost. What was it, so? What was it like? I, I mean, I can tell from your your voice and the way you're talking about it. it it's it's sort of stacked up to be what you'd really oh, totally hoped or, or, or if not surpassed that. But yes, if you think about the reasons why you wanted to get into politics or what you wanted to achieve, was was that what it what you thought? I mean, I. I sort of conscious of the fact that some people get into politics, the reason why I considered it was because you want to see some change. Mm. And is it easy to make that change when you're in politics or do you get you know, caught up in the machine? And Great question. Um, so there's – depends what change you seek. 
if you are wanting to be a, and I think all electorate MPs, regardless of persuasion, um, would have this view, I think, is being an electorate MP where you have the obligation of being an advocate for your community means that you do have the opportunity to make small changes uh, in people's lives which are profound for them. Mm. Uh, I'll just give you an example. It might be uh, someone has you know, not been appropriately supported through the health system. Uh, it might be an immigration case. Um, it r- always relates to services provided by the government agencies which are, uh, are not due the individual. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't worked for them. And your and your officer's ability to get in and through your own uh, personality, relationships, advocacy, uh, understanding of the detail, making a change for them, you do make change people's lives. Uh, and some of the, you know, there has been some incredibly emotional moments where you have changed people's lives for the better, right, and have them in tears on the other end of the phone. Uh, and uh, it's very, um, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do that. So you are absolutely making a difference uh, at an individual family level, right? Uh, and that's a big part of being a community leader. And then you go to the Wellington side, where the change that you can uh, facilitate, by and large, only happens if you're in government, right? I have been lucky. I have had two members' bills, one a technical change to the Cooperative Companies Act and the other, a bit more substantive, the change of labelling obligations on sunscreen that got selected from the ballot, so that's completely random, and then got the opposition, which is the Labour government, to support, which is almost unheard of. So I've had two uh, successes there. Put that in context, Trevor Mallard was a politician for 32 years, never had one ballot pulled out, one bill pulled out of the ballot. So I've had two in opposition, and both of them got government support. So that was pretty cool. Personally, um, you know, part of the reason that I'm stepping aside is that I, I, I've, I've just run out of enthusiasm for the nature of politics and the political engagement. The, probably the high point, second only to being elected the leader of the National Party, was what I did with James Shaw on the Zero Carbon Bill. Uh, we... You know, we negotiated for months to come up with a framework to deal with climate change that would be bipartisan. And we got it across the line. It was a close-run thing, but we got it across the line. Uh, and I feel very proud about that, you know, the small part I played in, in having a piece of legislation that should be enduring that enables exactly what happened yesterday, an independent climate commission, give advice not only to the government but to the opposition and to the country saying, we said we needed to be here, we're here, here's the gap, here's how we better fix it. By the way, these policies that the government's doing need to change. That's exactly what you want. Uh, and I feel proud about that. But those examples of bipartisanship are few and far between. I went to my caucus with an idea about food rescue. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned that before. And when I was at Refuge, um, I worked really closely with Good Neighbour Food Rescue, my local food rescue organisation, who transformed the, the funding that we needed to get 
um, you know, I didn't have to fundraise for meat and food for families. We had we had this food supplied to us from Food Rescue, and I basically went to Parliament with the idea that because I think you know they basically supported us to the tune of about seventy thousand dollars a year worth of food and cleaning products and toilet paper and sanitary products and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so I went to Parliament with the idea that we should do something about that. And um, and I remember the first time I, 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 I did a, I, I wanted to, to um, you know, engage with it. And I took a paper to caucus and I engaged caucus on it. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, sounds like an all right idea or whatever. But it took a period of time and the idea itself was picked up in budget, we got $32 million for it, and it was uh, to set up um, the system across the country at a time when COVID had just hit, when we needed to get food out to families, uh, where we needed a support, we needed a mechanism. And so it was kind of like that fresh thinking that just at the time it was needed, and that became part of a um, a significant piece of work that continues today now with that food sector because it's the story, right? It's the story of environmental benefits, but it's also poverty and food hung- and food poverty. And it's also just about the fact that nobody likes waste. Food waste, how ridiculous. Hungry people. And we're we're throwing away all this food, so that was an example of how, as a as a member, I can you know you can you can influence regardless of where you sit in caucus, um, whether you're a minister or a backbencher. Yeah. So yeah. But some people are so wound up with their point of view that they don't care about their safety or other people's safety. And the worst time I had was a conference in Rotorua. And um, and I've done something with early childhood, and so there were protesters there about early childhood. And regardless of what went on in the conference, when I came out there was a whole group of people from the early childhood sector, and I stopped and talked to them. And, um, and and talked about what, you know, because you're always trying to explain. There's always reasons why you do You don't just do things because, you know, you want to get at them or off the top of your head you thought it was a good idea. There's normally, you know, a thoughtful process that you've been through and, and trying to explain to them what my thinking was, why I was doing whatever I was doing. I can't even remember what it was now. Um and and then and then you know after after about ten minutes I wasn't getting anywhere and they're starting to to wind themselves up, and so um, I had the secretary for education Karen Sewell was with me and my press secretary and I can't remember there's someone else um, might have been an advisor, and they said you know the car's waiting I think I think I think you you know I think you should should get away now, so we did and we took my leave of the people and got in the car and then some of them went and put themselves in front of the car with their children. They had small children with them. And that's that was really scary that they would risk 
you know, put their own children at risk to make a political point. Um, mm-hmm. There was a bit of that, mm. which, yeah, it was, it was tough. How, it was tough how does that kind of, that, when you say it's tough, how does that really feel? So I think there's, some, there's something in this. It's scary. I mean, obviously, it's when you're a politician, minister, you're very much in the public eye. Um, and, and we can we can see we can see what's on the surface, right? But you've already told us that you're a person who keeps your yeah. emotions, um, you know, behind a bit of a screen, for want of a better phrase. But how how is it real? I mean, at the end of the day, you're just a you're just a person trying to do your best. Yeah, yeah, that's Never right. mind what side of the yeah. political fence you're on. You're trying to do what you think is is best. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's not just a off the cuff kind of idea. Uh, there's some thought and there's some. Effort and energy that's gone into it yeah. in, the, in, the, yeah. in the back in the back of that. How how does it feel though when you're coming up against that kind of that kind of thing so, when you're implementing the standards yeah. and you're getting pushed back from principles and all that kind of stuff? How does that? How do you take that personally? You 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 either cope with it or you don't, and and a lot of people don't. Um, I think because I I am that sort of person, I could keep I could keep that inside, and I could still have. A, you know, present a reasonable face, um, try and get a bit of humour sometimes. Like that that conference, they'd organised um, different placards, different coloured placards. So when I mentioned particular words, they would hold up those placards, which was a bit silly really. Um, so so you, you, you my, my way of coping with it was when I knew I was going to say national standards, I'd say to them, I'm going to say it, so get ready to hold the blue ones up, you know. <laughs> um, another time I went and they and they were standing at the back, I think it was PPTA, and they were all standing at the back with these big placards, but I didn't have my glasses on and I'm short-sighted so I couldn't read them. Um, and I said afterwards, you know, well, look, I'm sorry, but I couldn't see what was on your placards because I didn't have my glasses on. Uh, so you, you develop ways of coping, but that... That one with the people in front of the car was the first time uh, I really saw fanaticism almost. Mm. Um, and and I had a really good relationship with my uh, my chief executive, with Karen Sewell, and, and she, she could see through my facade that I was really shaken by that. She took me off to a coffee bar, actually. I went past it not, rec- not, not long ago. And and it all and I felt myself shaking mm. because I got there and I just burst into tears um, with her in the bathroom, um, and then you know she took me out and we had a cup of coffee and, and we sat round and, and and sort of had a bit of a debrief. But generally, um, I've been fortunate that I've had chief executives who've helped me with a lot with a lot of that. Mm. Um, you, you know, you develop good relationships, trusting relationships, and so. They can see, um, they can see through the facade a bit, uh, but but it does shake you. And, and as I say, many people give up. They can't they can't cope with it. Um, and stress. I, and I, uh, yeah, it is stressful. Mm. And and I've got a, had a really good family who who um, who've always been very supportive, mm. both both children and particularly my husband. And then um, the party itself actually gave me a huge amount of support. Uh, and um, one or two um, party members uh, would, would ring me just out of the blue and just, you know, say, look, know what 
I know, you know, what your jobs, it's tough. And so so extraneous support. And then every now and then you'd get I'd get someone from the education um sector who who would who would also reinforce that we actually believe, you know, you're on the right track. Right. You, you're doing the right thing. So all of that sort of bolsters you that you mm. that you. It's when it's when you feel you're absolutely alone. I think that's the most vulnerable time. Mm. And have um, you felt that? And have you have you been? No, in those no, I, 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 no, I haven't. I, I, I've always, um, no, I, I, ha- I haven't. Mm. Which which is probably why I've been able to cope mm. so well. Now there is something to your observation that uh, I think is is true and is troubling me is that over the last nine years it feels to me that the nature of the cr- criticism of governments and individuals and in governments have become more per- personal uh, and more toxic not necessarily in parliament because we have very strict rules around what we're allowed to say and not allowed to say you can't stand up in parliament and say you're a liar can't even say you because you're referencing the speaker. So you've got to say, so we've got all this, these strict standing orders, they're called rules essentially around how our discourse occurs in parliament. But that said, there's still, you know, it is, it is always going to be a, a place of fierce debate. Mm. And I think that's, that's fine. I don't have a problem with the chamber being uh, a place of fierce debate. What concerns me is the, is the broader um, avenues for political discourse beyond Parliament, which historically was just the media in terms of a journalist's interpretation of what you said and what I said and some hopefully balanced assessment of that debate. The media in the traditional sense is increasingly bypassed by social media where the same protagonists politicians, and those who critique the, and the public critique the politicians and the journalists are on the platform of Twitter bashing the hell out of each other. And the language that's used on that is completely over the top and poisonous uh, and toxic, none of which is allowed in the debating chamber. But you can say whatever you want on social media largely, and people do. Uh, and so politicians, not all of them, I hardly ever go on Twitter, but some, some of my colleagues and the Labour Party are constantly out there promoting their view and I think fiercely and personally and in a toxic way attacking the opposition. Uh, not only politicians but also um, commentators, uh, you, know, you know, individuals who have a particular view in, on life, they're all in there, Right. And the journalists are watching and, and, and you know, creating and facilitating that, fueling it. it. And then you've got the more um, sort of, you know, less so the Instagram and uh, stuff, but Facebook is another platform where people, I mean, when I put stuff on Facebook, I have someone in my office that sits and moderates and takes out the stuff. Not that's critical to me per se, but the language they use mm. is appalling. It is absolutely vicious language they will call into you know they will attack me for my lack of competency they will they will attack me for mental health they will seriously and so my office tries to hide those so at least it's not a complete you know Mm -hmm. 
And so to your question around, you know, what's the leadership then that politicians should um, uh, show and what's the behaviour that politicians should try and model in that context is a very good one because, you know, in my view, I'd put a line through Twitter. I think it brings the worst out of worst of us uh, and doesn't necessarily show politicians in a good light because you end up just having fierce partisan conversations all the time in that, in that term. And the more fiercer those engagements are, the more edge it then brings to your uh, engagement in the chamber and in your engagement in terms of the broader select committee uh, process, which is supposed to be collaborative. How select committees work is that you've got the majority, I don't, you put this legislation on. We don't like the legislation. We're going to vote against it. But we are now going to spend the next six months listening to people's feedback on the legislation. And where we can, we'll try and find agreement on areas that could change, which still means you get your intent, but actually the legislation is better law. Isn't it? So if you think about the, the behaviour on Twitter, for instance, right. what's that demonstrating to the rest of the population about how we how we engage. Yeah, I, I'm reminded we had um, Angie Warren Clark um, here a few weeks ago. Uh, great conversation. Um, but she, t you know, she talked about the um, vulnerability that she feels that she's got in in public because of the way that people are behaving towards her. And I think that's a change that we've seen. Yes, it is in New Zealand over the last few years. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's, it's you know, been apparent for a long time overseas, but not here. Mm. So something has changed, hasn't it, over the last few years, the way that people feel towards politicians. And whether that's the general uncertainty of society these days or whether it's a reflection of politics in this country, I'm not sure which, which comes I first. Think it's, I think it's, well, yeah, which, which does come first. Um, I mean, ultimately, politics reflects society, mm. I think. Um, now, I know that's, that's not a, that doesn't um, remove the obligation from us to show leadership in terms of behaviour and tone uh, and what we call out as acceptable and what, what we don't call out as accept and what we accept. Um, but that is, you know, it is a, it is an increasingly fragmented and fraught society. And I know Ange, I think she's a, she's a great person. And, you know, I have enjoyed the fact that my political opponent here uh, is someone that I know well and I would consider a friend, actually. Not a close friend, like, but we, we knew each other at university, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, and she's a great person and she advocates for her values and her community well. And I see no reason why you can't have a relationship like that. You know, people will vote with who they want to vote for but you should be able to respect somebody with a different political view mm. because it's a valid view. I don't think it's a view that um, is right for the country. I prefer National to be in power. But her view is valid and her right to hold the view is valid mm. and it's, it's appalling that she's been subjected to, you know, the online abuse. But, you know, it's not just her. Um, you know, I think the way people reacted to uh, Jacinda was outrageous. Uh, you know, I thought many elements of her policy were appalling in terms of policy, but the vitriol uh, and the misogyny, just shocking. Uh, not from everybody, of course, 
but the problem is if the, the more this occurs, the more we become desensitised to it, the more we just accept it as just the noise of day-to-day -day life, the worse it is for the civility of politics. And that, you know, that worries me. Well, does it become more about, you know, my, my fear, you've got a love of American politics. I suppose when I look at that from afar, I think it's all about personalities. So, you know, I know very little about American policy. It, it tends to be based on who, who do you like, who are you going to vote for, and it's about personalities. You know, are we at risk here of, of you know, kind of policy becoming less of a, a factor and feature for people to consider and more about personality types because we seem to be targeting the personality of people rather than their policy, which is what you just pointed out about with Jacinda Ardern, you know, uh, policies may have been flawed from your perspective, but, you know, that's, she's doing the best that she can, like you're doing the best that you can. Yeah. But we attack, we don't attack the policies, we attack the, the people. And so I, is, that, is that where we're heading? Is it become, going to become about more about personalities than policy? Well, that is where it's heading in my view. Mm. Um, you know, we are not America, we are not Australia, uh, we're not Canada. We're not the United Kingdom, but we, uh, our traditions are more tightly aligned to that than they are of any other um, you know, jurisdiction in the world. Uh, and that's where they're going, rapidly. Uh, and you can see the same uh, elements in New Zealand politics. Now, my prediction is that this election is going to be brutal. Uh, you know, hopefully it breaks more uh, significantly to... Uh, national than it is at the moment, but I can see uh, you know the next six months being a pretty brutal arm wrestle between National Labour that appear to be sort of locked in a you know in a sort of largely the same vote each space, uh, you know their respective partners Green Act respectively largely on the same numbers, and you know that's bounced around now for six months longer and it's largely been the same. Mm. Uh, and you think, goodness me, this means we are going to have, you know, th there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. Either there's going to be an absolute call for change or an absolute let's keep it as the same and it's going to be pretty brutal out there. Mm -hmm. And um, you can't, we must not lose the civility, right? If you get to the point where you just really dislike the person who holds the different political view than you, mm. you're in trouble. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I see it I see it everywhere and I, and I do not see it as just a creature of the right. And I hate that. I hate the sense of hate's too strong. I dislike the fact that, you know, you see it on Twitter, um, you know, people who have, of right persuasion, are, uh, you know, attack viciously the the woke um, tendencies of the left and the left attacked the right as as sort of an incarnation of fascism and we're using labels with all the subjective weight of history uh, in them uh, as you know carefree that we just throw it at each other and I, I you know where does that lead well it's it's um so so it's it's this incredible mix of just amazing privilege and opportunity with unrelenting work and drudgery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like um, you know, I often tell people it's really funny, you'll be in the supermarket and you'll be, you know, 
in the sanitary product aisle or something. And someone will be holding you the product. And someone will be up talking to you about their local issue. So you don't get at times, you know, you, you it's it can be incredibly intrusive into sometimes it just needs some peace and quiet and calm. Yeah. I'm in it for more than this year, put it that way. Um I do find it I find it quite um at times uh, quite agree, uh, aggressive and violent um is like one of the things that um has happened over the last probably couple of years is there has been a real change in how I feel about my personal safety and a lot of MPs talk about this so so you know I can be driving on our motorway or I can be driving on Hewlett's Road and people will wind down their window and yell and scream abuse at me I could be at the supermarket and people will just come up to me and bail me up and be really aggressive um I've had people drive towards me in their cars, those kinds of things. That takes a toll. Um, and so it's it's that balance, right? It's like I know that this will sound very trite, but I don't do this to get a benefit out of it. Like I'm, I'm doing genuinely want to serve my community. But at some point, if it gets worse, I will make the choice to walk away. Um and I'll go do something completely different. Mm. But literally it's, um, you know, p- people think they have the right to have a go at you, and that is not the case. I call out abuse where I see it. Um, people don't get a chance to speak to me like that. They want to have a decent and reasonable conversation. Sweet, let's do that. And I can be, I can understand that people might be passionate, but abusive, screaming out the window that I'm an um, driving towards me in their vehicles, those kinds of things. But clearly, you're experiencing a bit of an escalation in that kind of thing. So we need to we need to take notice well, of you that. You know, and one of the things is I'm quite protected from it. Like when I'm by myself, it's different. But you know, um, we have a lot of systems to keep us safe. But you know, our staff uh, work in an environment that's incredibly abusive to them. And, um, you know, I make no mistake, I, um, I'm i not okay with that happening. Um, I was in a workplace where someone was murdered in the workplace at ACC at the time. Right. And so I know how things can turn um, very bad, very quickly. But um, I guess the other part of it is my family as well. Uh, so my family never signed up for, for this. They never signed up to be sitting with me somewhere and have someone bail me up and abuse me. We never signed up um, for the constant um, sense of having to kind of monitor my safety and watch. And I'm a relatively low-key MP. Like, a lot of people don't know I'm an, e- an MP, and I, I'm quite happy about that. But, um, you know, it really upsets my husband. It really does. He's he's like, I don't want you to do this anymore. Mind you, he did that as well when I was at refuge and, you know, I'd go out at night and pick up women and stuff. He'd be like, be safe, I'm coming with you. You know, and I'd be like, you can't come with me. They don't want to see you. <laughs> they want to see women. They don't want to see a man, you know. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that really, it is hard. It's a huge toll. And then um, 
fortunately my kids are older, like they're adults. So that's the other thing, right? Um, if I had smaller kids and that kind of abuse was happening, I'd be very concerned. Um, I wouldn't want to put my children in that circumstance or situation. So what's, what, what do you think the, I mean, this is maybe a silly question, but what do you think the answer is, Angie? I mean, because I mean, we don't want good people leaving politics through fear. Yeah. That's not the kind of, surely that's not the kind of society that we yeah. want. We want, we want, a, again, irrespective of which party you, yeah. you, you we, we want people representing different views, right? That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, we haven't got a democracy anymore. Absolutely. And so how, how do we go about making people like yourself feel safer and actually are safer, not just feel safer, but yeah, actually are yeah. safer? Well, like I say, we've got um, some really good systems in place, um, and I won't go into them because no, you know, yeah. you know yeah. they, they are really some really good systems mm. in place to help support our safety personally and mm. and on precinct as well as in our offices, etc. But I think, I mean, the reality is this: when uh, when you're in an environment where it is, you know, people are braver on. The braver as keyboard warriors than they are any other time, but then there's a percentage of people who are just literally they they don't care. They do not care um, where you sit. You're you're a baddie because you're a politician. Doesn't matter what your views are. You're a baddie because you're a politician. Um, those those concerns are. That yeah, if you were a, if you were a mum of young kids, you wouldn't, or a dad of young kids, you wouldn't want to do this work. And I guess what it is is for New Zealand to grow up a little bit because we've had it pretty lucky for a long time. You know, I can be in the supermarket on my own shopping, <laughs> getting my, getting my toilet paper. You know, um, yeah. but we we just now have to have a different sense of safety um, because people. People think it's okay. And again, it comes back to beliefs and values and myths and disinformation, you know. People mm. people believe what they want to believe mm. and um, it's, it's a shame, know, isn't the it? system. And, and I've always said, um, particularly to my team, <laughs> my family, I don't have to say it to because they do it, the good, the bad and the ugly. So, you know, I've never liked, I've never wanted to have people around me who were what you'd call yes people. Mm. Um, always given my staff free licence to, to be upfront and honest. I've always respected that. Um, you know, I can be defensive like anyone. Um, criticism's always hard to take, but, mm. but it's, it's, you know, I've, I've, I've welcomed um, having a team that can be honest with me but also very supportive. And, and, and I've had some amazing people work with me and for me mm. over the years. Um, family are, are always frank, mm. um, and, um, and, and that's good, that's, mm. that's fine, uh, because you, you, know, you need that. They, they, they ground you. Mm. Um, but I've, I just think I've been incredibly fortunate, and even now where I am in Tauranga um, as, in the commission, tremendous staff there. Mm supporting the work that the Commission's trying to do and my, my fellow commissioners, um, you know, 
each one of us brings different skills to the table and you respect that and you make the most of it and you end up with a very strong team. I just want to pick up on a comment that you said, oh, I think is an important one, which is... Uh, and my team, and I've been really blessed with fantastic people, they assist those uh, constituents with their uh, challenges. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organisation, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz.